You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. One of the most challenging aspects of teaching yoga is trying to describe how incredibly multifaceted it is to people who've been exposed to a more one-dimensional version through popular media. It's kind of tempting, I think, to avoid this by either choosing to focus mostly on the physical side of the practice or on the mental and spiritual aspects. But all the layers of ourselves are needed to show up for the work of integration that is yoga. In today's conversation, I talk about this multi-layered approach in the context of working with back pain with Lila Schwartz, an Asheville-based yoga teacher, teacher trainer, and author with more than 40 years of teaching experience. Lila is such an important figure in the Asheville yoga community because she ran the very first yoga studio in town for more than 20 years. I moved to Asheville when I was 15, and I'm pretty sure that the first time I ever heard about yoga at all was in connection to Lila's studio. Over the years, she's trained and influenced countless teachers here in Asheville, and over the past decade, she's also become a treasured personal friend of mine. If you're interested in teaching yoga to people with back pain and you want to take an integrated, multi-layered approach, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. So let's jump right in, and I'll see you on the other side. Lila, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Mando. It's a pleasure to be here. It's been a few years, not since we've chatted, but since we've chatted and recorded it. It's true. It has been a couple of years. It's been uh, a very interesting couple of years and one that's been filled with a lot of personal growth for a lot of people. That is true. And I, I just want to say I'm really pleased to be with you again on this podcast. I love your work. I love everything that you're doing online, supporting yoga, yoga teachers, and the practice. You're very open-minded, and I just really, really appreciate your work a whole bunch. So thanks for having me back on. Yeah, and thank you for graciously coming to share your many years of wisdom. I think I shared this the first time you were on, but we have lots of new listeners, and so they may not be familiar with you. We both live in Asheville, North Carolina, and Lila opened the first yoga studio in Asheville, North Carolina. How many years ago was that? It was 1981. So we'll let everyone else do the math. <laughs> about, 40, about 40 years, about 40 years. Yeah. And so you were one of the first, if not the first people to bring yoga to this area. I, I was the first one. I was the first one. I remember opening that first studio. I remember looking for a space to teach yoga in. And I was checking out this one space. And I had, there were three men there. There was a realtor, new friends that we had just met when we moved to Asheville, and another man there. And they were all there. And they were looking at me and they're going, that's never going to fly. You can't open a yoga studio. You'll never make it. And I looked at the three of them and I said, well, it's what my guidance says I'm supposed to do next. So I think I'll just go ahead and do it. So your 
focus these days is on helping folks with back pain learn to heal and befriend their bodies. That's true. That's true. And, you know, for me, I started out with a back injury from age 16, which set me up for all kinds of difficulties. I didn't think it was a problem until I was about at year number seven of practicing and teaching yoga. And then my hip and my low back never stopped hurting for months, didn't stop hurting. And so I, it, it took me on a, on a journey. It took me on a journey to go deeper, to understand more, to consult with senior teachers who had more experience. And it was a, a gradual process. I think my first I think my first DVD came out in 1991. The other one came out in 2001. So one was for the lower back, one was for neck and shoulders. And then I had another one that I came out with for the asymmetric pelvis, which came out another five years later, somewhere around 2005 or six. And all of those topics, I have courses with official courses that I did with Yoga U online for all those topics, not just the simple old old standing DVDs when my hair was jet black instead of silver gray. <laughs> <laughs> so Lil, I'm curious, a lot of people, primarily women, end up attracted to yoga, coming with these bodies that are more on the mobile end of the spectrum. Was that you? Were you more mobile naturally? I think initially in the first four, five, six years, not so much. I think I was flexible in some ways and not in other ways. So it was sort of a combo pack. Definitely my hips and my low back were pretty locked up and my neck and shoulders were pretty locked up. I think that it, and I think that's part of what happened at the seven year mark. I had been doing yoga long enough. I'd had a baby by then. So I got some flexibility, increased flexibility and mobility after having a child and doing yoga through that. But it got to the point where I had done yoga enough that I had lengthened all the extrinsic muscles and had really traveled inward to the intrinsic muscles. And then I was finding out that there were really deep seated imbalances in my body that needed attention. So we and get I think to that. Yeah, we get to that in different ways. So somebody may get to it really quickly because they are super flexible. And so the imbalances show up faster, maybe in their first year of doing yoga and took me a little bit longer, but you know, it's, it's definitely part of the picture. And I think that almost all of us, when we travel down a path of self-inquiry through a somatic lens of, of getting to know ourselves through our bodies, we encounter these massive imbalances and they are some, to some great degree, I think, caused by the modern lifestyle, which is really different from how the human body evolved. And yet here we are living <laughs> in, in these gorgeous, spacious, to whatever degree houses and sitting in these comfortable chairs and driving these miraculous cars. And I don't think most of us are really willing to give that up. <laughs> and we need to find some balance, you know? And, and I think that a lot of us who teach yoga have a passion, have a, a fire in us for sharing what we learn through our own self-inquiry to help more people live 
lives that that contain more balance physically, mentally, emotionally, and in all of these different ways. So I know that some of your work is related to teaching people and probably often teaching yoga teachers that flexibility or mobility is not the first goal, even when we're talking about like the outer kosha, the, the, the physical body that even though many of us are drawn to yoga and we see flexibility as sort of the example of accomplishment, your perspective is that that's not the primary goal. So talk, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a lovely thing. You know, when I was in my thirties, I also did as many poses as I could to accomplish as many as possible and managed to injure my knee, managed to injure my neck, managed to injure my hip, managed to tear the top of my psoas because those imbalances were underneath and there was no understanding of how to address those imbalances and then practice the more advanced poses if that's indeed what one is called to do, right? So, so when it comes to, so what my back pain has taught me is that the first thing to do is to figure out stability. How do you make your body stable? When we sit in chairs and ride in cars and the whole scenario, you modern scenario you painted for us so beautifully, when we're doing that, the psoas is shortening, the lumbar spine is becoming weak, the fascia and the muscles of the lumbar spine becomes weak, the circulation to the legs decreases, so the hamstrings also shorten. And then we stand up and we wanna go do a yoga practice. Well, when I sit in a chair for a long period of time, the way my pelvis is constructed after my, my injury, my right sits bone always rests heavier than my left. And if I sit in a chair long enough and get up, I have trouble walking because my SI joint has slipped out of position. So I have techniques for that. I have a sacral belt that if I'm going to sit at the desk and do something really focused, I'll put a sacral belt on, which will stabilize my two hip bones, pull them in toward the center and make my sits bones land evenly on my chair. When I get up, take the belt off, go for a walk. I can go up the mountain, down the mountain, around the mountain, and my hips feel just fine. Otherwise, I'm gonna be a little unstable. So because of the imbalance, it's gonna be sort of a slippage situation. So when I teach, it's important that the pelvic clock is the best tool I've found for students who have any kind of back or hip concerns. And the way to experience that, you have to experience it from a sensing feeling point of view first. So, you so lying down on the floor is a great place to start. And then just tipping the pelvis front, back, side to side and sensing and feeling one side goes down further than the other, or it touch more of the bone, the side of the sacrum touches more on one side than the other. And what happens when you drop six o'clock, which I call the inner groin is six o'clock and 12 o'clock is the navel, three o'clock and nine o'clock are the two hip bones. So when you're playing with that, can you play with that little gyroscope enough until you find center point? So center point is the fulcrum of the sacrum and you want that balanced on the floor. And if you get that balanced on the floor, you know what? Your lumbar spine's not gonna be touching. 
you're going to have a, a curve in your back. Your back's going to be off the floor. And if your back is pressing onto the floor and collapsing on the floor at that moment, then you need to do an adjustment. So if someone came to my class like that and they were hitting, as soon as they take their leg up and soup to pod one, it's going to drive that lumbar right into the floor, right into whatever dysfunction is there, whether it's a, a pinched facet joints, a bulging disc, a collapse of, of the, you know, the disc spaces, whatever it is, and there could, any number of things is going to collapse. So I'm going to take a folded towel and put it underneath their lumbar and support their lumbar so it cannot collapse. So I want to keep them out of pain. I want them to be in a place where they can figure out that their hamstrings are probably wicked short. And they got to figure that out without involving their lumbar. And so they can make note of it in, your, in their body mind and know, okay, this is what it feels like when I'm really stretching my hamstring and my low back is supported. So they have to kind of be able to digest that. So there's a lot of detail work. And before we started recording, you mentioned to me that you really enjoy working with older folks because they seem to have more patience, more willingness to slow down and to dive into those details that are really essential. And, you know, one of the things that's coming up for me is another one of the inputs of modern life is, is the pace, social media, the news, all of this input, all of this information to the point that our nervous system is used to being entertained all the time, like fed it, lots of big information all the time. And many younger folks, myself included at times, although I know that I've been working on this skill set as a yoga practitioner for the last 20 plus years, but we struggle to pause and to have the patience to wait for the more subtle signals. Right. So what I would say to that is, you know, during the pandemic, we all had a lot more time at home on our yoga mat, either doing yoga on Zoom or doing yoga by ourselves. And I think the missing piece, you got to go back to the five koshas because we, we're not just a physical body. The physical body, the Anamaya kosha is the end point of the manifestation of our soul. It is the end point. It's not so we can go from the bottom up and go towards our soul from our asana practice by tuning into our breath, connecting the mind to the breath, the breath to the body, and moving the body through space. Very important. We want to be here. We want to live. So you got to keep that body moving, or you're dying. That's how that's how we roll, right? And and so. During the practices, I, one of the things that I brought into my teaching practice during the pandemic was more of a centering at the beginning of the class and recognizing and remembering that we are soul first in a body, not the body having a soul. We're the soul first having a body. And so I used to start with the hands and namaskar at the center of the chest, touching the heart, doing some connected breathing, five in and five out, which is what HeartMath Institute did for you know, the research with heart-brain coherence. And then you find the things you're grateful for. You find the things in your life that you can appreciate. You give yourself 
some positive feedback. You know, I did really well today. I did blah, blah, blah. And, and that sort of thing is a way of centering with your heart, which is going to slow you down for the practice. And then the other piece is just like taking the hands and from the heart and reaching them up above and remembering that there's this huge, huge funnel of light coming down through the crown of your head, down through your central channel. And our job is to ground it into the earth. That's our job as a being to ground it into the earth so that we we're a clear representation. For me, it's the path of unity. Yoga is the path of unity. And so it's like, what, how, how do I then come into my body so fully and love myself enough that I can be a living, healthy cell in the body of humanity? How do I do that? And I think centering with the breath and remembering, just remembering at the beginning practice helps us slow down and get connected to what we're doing. Mm, that's beautiful. I love that. What it seems to me is that really what it comes back to is presence. And there's all of these different entry points to presence, whether the entry point is moving your body in a way that reminds you of your essence, whether it's a pause and a a reflection, whether it's a breath exercise, whatever it is that works for you to bring you into the present moment and to help you remember the truth of who you are. That's yoga. And it's so, it's so beautiful that there are so many different paths. Don't you think? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's the beauty of just looking at the five koshas again, plug in at any level that you want to plug in and go eat up or go down, and you're going to find something about yourself. And, that, and then you will discover your own, your own heart will then tell you, you know, hey, you need to give this some more attention over here. Oh, and then you start the, re the request process. Oh, heart, my heart. What is my next step to do? Right? Yeah. And some of that feedback, some of that information is coming in the form of pain. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the nuggets that you offered to share during this podcast was about how we identify and address these sensations. And you said you have four steps. So I'm very curious about them. Okay, great. So, yeah, so we want to remember, I think that when, when we get stuck in our mind, we get stuck in our head a lot, you know, and, and internet and digital, this and that is a mind journey. It's a mind construct and we get stuck there. So when we start relating to our body and we want to uncover the wisdom of our body, we have to say, what am I feeling? What is the sensation I'm having? Because the body's always talking to us but it's only talking in sensation, not in words. And we have to slow down enough to give it some words. So, you know, so let's talk about pain. So when there's pain in the body, it's, it's a feedback, it's a sensation that's saying, give me attention, but we don't know what the pain's about. You don't know, and that's the, this is the interesting part because you don't know what the pain's about. So all pain produces resistance. 
a muscle is tensing, the fascia is tensing, we got, you know, the stomach is tensing, the visceral organs are tensing, something's tensing. So there's some sort of contraction and resistance. So then we find the yoga pose that brings us to the doorway of that resistance. And we knock on the door. Hello, who's in there? And we start breathing. And we see what happens. And we try going a little deeper in the stretch. And if we go a little deeper in the stretch and the body goes, oh, it's really intense, but I think it's okay. All right. And we come out of the stretch and, and it's like, oh yeah, that was intense, but I feel a little better now. Pain is less, pain is diminished. We go, okay, that's feedback. The sensation of release is a sensation and that's feedback. Or we go into the pain and we say, oh, let me, I'm going to test this pain. I'm going to go a little deeper, which I don't recommend <laughs> unless and until you have aligned your joints in such a manner that you know you're not hurting one of your joints. If you're hyperextending your knee in a standing pose and you're bending forward and hyperextending your knee and you've got pain in the back of the knee, don't push your knee straighter because there's a misalignment at the root of that. So you got to get that alignment piece first. That's, the, that's one of the physical laws. Alignment matters. That's one of the physical laws. So if you know you're in alignment and you still want to test it and stretch a little more and you come out of that pose and the muscle fires harder, squawks, burns, bites, you got to know that you don't want to stretch that muscle because that muscle could be resisting in resistance because it's stabilizing one of your joints. And you don't want to destabilize further. You want to do the opposite. You want to actually contract that muscle, not stretch it. So there's some messages that come from, from sensation that we can learn to understand. The, the four steps that you asked me about, the basic fundamental four steps is you meet the resistance, you stop. Here I am at the resistance. And the first thing you do is suspend judgment. You just stop and breathe and see what happens, right? If, if it's, the body's going to respond. When you start bringing your mind to your breath and your breath to your body and just start breathing, where the body is a unified system. And so, again, you can enter the koshas anywhere. You can enter your body anywhere with any pose. And you're into the whole entire system. So you get to that resistance and just stop, breathe, and ask, what is this about? What judgment do I have? So if it's, if it's physical, it might melt away really quickly with the breath. If it's mental, emotional resistance that you're touching, you could have a memory pop into your heart. You could have a thought pop into your head. You could go, geez, I'm still really pissed at that person. And then it's telling you something about yourself, of what you're holding on to that you need to probably forgive yourself for more than somebody else, although you may need to forgive somebody else too, right? So there's lots of messages that can come, but the idea is you come up against the resistance, you stop, you suspend judgment. So no self-judgment, no judgment about the pain. This is my bad leg all those kind of judgments, no judgments, just stop, breathe, wait. And what I like to say is lengthen the limbs. 
lengthen. Just think of it reaching out into space with your leg or your arm. What would it be like if you raised both arms overhead and extended your whole spine on the floor and lengthened? How would that give you relief? Chances are it would. Chances are it would. So you wait for that release and see what, it, what, it, what you learn from it. So it's almost like a miniature laboratory, our own individual experiment. It's our own individual experiment. That's correct. That is correct. So for many years, I did a lot of yoga and I learned a lot about my hips from good senior teachers and what to do, how to strengthen my left side more than my right side to balance my asymmetries and things like that. And I still struggled with that, you know, sort of sacral imbalance that kept happening over and over and over again. And it was about, it was only about four years ago, it was not that long ago, that I got really deep into Donna Farhi's book on a centered, centered body, building a centered body. And she, she dissected the psoas so many different ways. And so I studied and I practiced and I had the aha moments and it was like, wow, the psoas muscle is so powerful. It's related to every movement. It's not just the flexion of the legs, but the movement of the arms, the beating of the heart, the movement of the diaphragm. It's the anterior supports of the spine and it takes up the whole inside wall of the torso. It's like a powerful muscle. It, it attaches to the vertebra and the discs and the processes of the vertebra. So it has three major attachments at every single lumbar disc from number one all the way down. So somebody could have a back problem and some aspect of the psoas could be pulling the disc to the side. Fascinating. It just fascinates me. So the idea of cultivating the psoas, finding a way to, number one, release. So the, what comes first is you create stability by paying attention to your alignment, learn the simple ways to start unwinding the psoas, unwind it, get it longer, and then tone it up. You know, it's it, typically, most of us, the psoas muscle is the connected to the subconscious mind. It's connected to the vagus nerve, which is a sensory nerve, 95% sensory nerve. So it's gonna take everything in and help store it in the body. Okay, and so when we go to unwind the psoas, it's an interesting process because it's like going into the depth of the cave. It's like you gotta go slow and deep and you wonder if you did anything or not, but then when you stand up and walk, you notice something's different. But you don't really feel it in the way that you would feel the muscles on the outside of the body because there are no nerve endings. There's, no, there's none of those motor neurons that deep in that we can sense, the sensory ones, we, but they're not there. But that's when my, my hip health jumped, made a quantum leap when I figured out how to balance that psoas. And that's something I, I, you know, I have a freebie for people on my website, which is no 
no tiny offering. It's a very generous offering. And I've got uh, five, five poses to release your psoas. And they can get it for free by just signing up on my free resources page on my website. Have a good time exploring. Do you want to say more about the relationship between the vagus nerve and the psoas? I'm imagining that it's in a sense, a two-way relationship, right? It's not like one is influencing the other and not the other way around, but that you probably want to enter into the relationship from multiple angles. Would you agree with that? So what I would say to that, Mado, is that there's ultimately there's no way to pick it apart because it's such an exquisite integrated system, right? And so the, if the vagus nerve is a sensory nerve, then it's going to be, it's going to register all of our emotions and it's going to, that's going to go into our, our abdominals, our core, our heart, all of that. It's going to kind of go in there. And because it can be a fight or flight situation, it can bring up fear or other concerns that's going to cause the psoas to tighten. And the psoas then is going to relate to the surrounding muscles like the quadratus, lumborum, et cetera, and the quads. And it, they're all going to just start firing together. So if there's a, a, a PTSD moment, it doesn't land in one place. It lands in the nerve, in the fascia, in the blood vessels, in the muscles. It lands everywhere. And, you know, this is so, you know, we can know that, but we also have to know that just adding smooth, relaxed breathing starts unwinding all of that as well, that it doesn't have to, the system is brilliant. It doesn't have to be complicated. We don't have to know every single nuance to really, you know, work with ourselves and if, if it's a it's a vagal nerve response and you don't know what it is, then you have to ask for guidance. You have to do some journaling or you have to do some reading of sacred books or you have to study something about the yoga sutras or something else to find some guidance, right? And they're like, again, there's many, many ways. There's 360 degrees in a circle. And it really speaks to some of what you were talking about with the body as an integrated system, an interconnected system. So we're talking about the psoas and the vagus nerve, but it ripples out into the eyelids and the jaw and the fingertips <laughs> and the fascia and the way that the fascia and the connective tissue in our bodies create these connections and create this integrated whole being that we're living in. So that's, that's really an interesting thing, you know, with all the new research with fascia, they know now that the motor neuron is located in the fascial tissue, not in the muscular tissue. So the, you know, the reason why we thought muscles moved bones around was because all the anatomy studies were done on cadavers and they were dead. And they used to scrape off the fascia and throw it on the ground. Right. And so now that we're studying living tissue, we notice that not only is fascia, fascia is the worldwide web of your organism, right? 
that's what it is. It's in your organism. And so, so what, what is obvious now, because, because it is, because we are a unified system, what's obvious now is something called tensegrity. And what tensegrity is, is that isolated components being bones are connected under compression to one another for the purpose of movement. So when, so, and, and when we're practicing yoga, pay attention when you do a stretch in one direction, what you feel on the opposite side, because your fascia is responding. If you, if, and, and, and that helps give you clues about how your body's connected and why that's important is because everybody has some little idiosyncrasy, right? So I'm really good as I'm, I'm a really good detective. I'm a good tracker and I can help people track what part of their body is pulling more than another when I do my one-on-one -on -one therapies with people, right? And on your own, what you want to do is pay attention to what's connected to what. So not only will you find the real places that are stuck instead of losing them in the glory of flexibility, but you'll also, you'll also start noticing, oh, this is my map. This is how my body is configured, which means that in this pose, I need to move my foot three inches in that direction because that's what lines me up. So, you know, the legs might not both go straight out. I very often have to take one knee out to the side more than the other, you know, but it's what lines me up and it what, it's what helps create the core stability of my pelvis. Okay. And it, and I just have to do this divergent thought for just a minute, this stream. So the, my biggest bugaboo about yoga practice is that too much flexibility moves are taught and not enough stability moves for the pelvis. And after a time, everybody is too loose in their pelvis. They can't lift something without it hurting. They can't vacuum the floor. If they're grandparents, they can't pick up their kids. They can't walk up that hill and back down again because they don't have enough power in their pelvis. They got to pull that power back into the pelvis in order to move through space. You know, and if, you, if it gets too loosey-goosey, the pelvic floor and the hips and the front and the back, and then the psoas will probably lock down to try and stabilize or something's going to lock down to try and stabilize. And it's going to be an imperfect balance rather than a more elegant balance. We want to be able to glide through space with stability. If we step on a rock, we want to be able to adapt, adjust in a moment so we don't fall. And, you know, as people get older, that's a big concern for them. A lot of people, it's the fall that kills them. When they get to their 70s and 80s, it's the fall that kills them. So, you know... It's such a wide, it's such a wide, wide subject, but let me pull it back in again to just talking about tensegrity for just a moment. So when you discover the map of your body and, and you know that everything you do is distributed through the whole system. So right now, if everybody listening to this and then even if they're driving their car, they could be at a stop sign and they could even do this driving their car. Just raise one arm up in the air 
and press on the ceiling and feel what happens in your in your in the same knee, the hip, the knee. What happened in the opposite hip? Something happened there too. And that's how you start noticing there's this system that everything's connected. Everything's connected. So if I'm teaching a person who is older or in a lot of pain for whatever reason, and they're never going to do advanced yoga poses, I can teach them how to sense their, their tensegrity of their fascia, and they can still move the energy through their form. So they can take that heart energy, that spirit energy, and still move it through their form and still be doing yoga. So that's all I'm going to say. Well, and that seems to be the evolving definition of advanced yoga anyway, and probably the more traditional old fashioned version as well. But there was this divergence somewhere in the late 90s, early 2000s, where we got distracted. We got distracted by the outer form and made some misidentifications with what that meant what it means to be able to take shapes that are risky and complicated and, and breathe through them, which is, it's a cool thing to do. I mean, there's yeah, nothing want, wrong with doing it, but I don't, right. I don't think most people at this point agree that it's actually advanced compared to listening, truly listening and paying attention. And I think there are those very great practitioners who do have who do combine it all and do a very advanced poses. My question always is, and I, I, I said this with a, a friend just recently, I had a, a, an interview with someone else just recently. And, and he said to me, I remember when you came to my studio, Lila, you were sitting in the front of the room and this was a, a power Ashtanga studio. And I was teaching a back care class. And, and we knew, I knew that some of his people were getting injured in classes or injuring themselves in classes because they needed more instruction. And he did too, which is why I was there. And he said, I remember you said to me, I'm not in any pain right now, are you? So the question to ask yourself is, did the practice you chose to do put you in pain? And if it puts you in pain, then your ego's pushing an envelope and you're not listening. And if you are listening, maybe you're just doing some really good laying the groundwork early on for your advanced practices later on. So that's what I'm going to say about that. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I want to make clear, I think we're probably on the same page about that, but you mentioned that there are some practitioners who are really great practitioners who can do the advanced poses and the internal work at the same time. And I don't think that those are better or more advanced practitioners than the ones who do the simple poses and the internal work at the same time. So I think that's a really important distinction that we have to stop conflating those two. Yes, some people are in bodies that are capable of and, and shaped and built for those advanced postures to be okay for them. Right. But, but the advanced postures aren't the yoga. And if, right, because of their makeup, the focus it takes to get into the advanced postures is useful for them, then that's fantastic. That is their, their map, right. their process, their journey, but not superior to the person in a wheelchair 
who is doing these subtle breathing exercises. You know, definitely, definitely correct on that, Mado, and well said as well. So I'm glad you clarified that. You know, I did spend some time to my teachers. One was Eric Small, who was living with MS and wrote the book Yoga for MS with Dr. Lauren Fishman. And I studied with him for 15 years. And I also studied with Matt Sanford, who teaches, uh, you know, adaptive yoga for people in wheelchairs, for people who've had traumatic spinal injuries. And Matt from his wheelchair could teach a better yoga class than a lot of people could who had all four limbs moving. So, you know, and he kicked our butts and I have four limbs and he kicked my butt <laughs> because, because of how he framed the work and how he understood that it was connected, that there was a deeper purpose and, and connecting to that deeper purpose of the practice. So thanks for clarifying that. That was great. Yeah. So as we wrap up, is there anything that we haven't touched on yet today that you think is missing from this conversation or something that we have talked about that you would like to emphasize? If you have a, if you have a hip that gives you some pain, how do you relate to your piriformis muscle? Do you stretch it or do you tone it? And that's all I'm going to say, because what I, 99% of the time, if somebody's got a real imbalance in their hips and one side of the piriformis keeps going into spasm or giving them discomfort over and over again, they probably love pigeon pose. And the first thing I do to help them heal is ask them to stop doing pigeon pose and bend forward over the front leg. So I'm going to throw that in the, in the, in the bag of things to consider common misperceptions of, of the practice of how to address the piriformis and the sacrum in, in practice. And it kind of goes along with squaring your hips and trikonasana. Those are, there are two bugaboos that create lots of problems in their hips. So, so that's something I would just want to put a caution out there, a cautionary tale and have people pay attention to that. And then the other thing I'd like to do is mention to everybody that this six week course that I did for that for Yoga You Online, I recorded it last fall and it's just now coming out through my website primarily. And it is a six week course and I, each, each 40 minute class focuses on a different aspect of yoga for back pain, fascia, core, psoas length, et cetera, sacral balancing, stability, that sort of thing. And it's available and it's really affordable. So I'm just going to put it out there. It's on the homepage of my website also. And I think you're, you have an option of maybe sharing that link with people. So definitely. And you can, you can share that now if you like as well. So if they go to uh, yogawithlala.com and on my homepage and, and uh, click on featured courses, they just as a scroll down on the homepage and it'll, it'll pop up right there. And they can also go to the free resources page and get the free SOAS series as well. Great. And that's L-I-L-L-A-H, Yoga Correct. with Lila. So my new Yoga U course has a booklet that comes with it. And it really covers in depth some of the things we just touched on a little bit here. And it's an eight, eight or nine page booklet that will cover a lot of that stuff and give people some real clear guidance of sort of quintessential stuff to consider when they practice. Wonderful. Thank you, Lila. Thank you for all the work you've done over the past 40 years and for sharing a snippet of that with us today. 
Well, thanks, Mado, so much. And I so, again, appreciate you for all you do and, and, the, and the wise interviews that you do. They're very intelligent and very much appreciated. And I know your followers appreciate you a lot as well. So thank you. Thank you to everybody. One of my favorite moments from that conversation was when Lila described the koshas as different entry points to presence and integration. I love this because often when you read or learn about the koshas, they appear hierarchical. Like you get on the elevator at the bottom floor of the physical and you ride your way up to the top where bliss awaits. I love thinking that maybe it's not such a one-way ride. Some of us might have an easier time entering at the level of the mind and then need to travel down to the level of the body to fully integrate, to, to be able to heal. It, it just makes so much sense to me on an intuitive level, and especially in our culture, where many of us spend much more time in our heads than in our bodies, that it might be more about finding the right ingredients for your personal constitution and your personal circumstances than just this one linear ride to the top. With so many concepts from yoga philosophy, different schools describe them differently. And like I said, that diagram where Anamanakosha is the center and the others radiate out from the center, that's a really common representation of the koshas. But Advaita Vedanta describes Anandamaya Kosha that bliss layer as the innermost layer. And some teachings on the koshas hold that Ananda Maya Kosha isn't a layer like the others, that it's separate, and that it's actually the truth of who you are. When I look at frameworks like the koshas, I'm most interested in relating to them in terms of usefulness, usefulness to reduce human suffering and help us live more skillfully. Whether that comes from an ancient framework or a modern framework is not as important to me as whether or not it actually guides you into presence and potential. The question I want to ask myself is, is this about an intellectual understanding or is it about embodied knowing? And there have been many times in the past where I've tried to study philosophy and I just, it all felt just in my head and it didn't feel like I could take that information and actually use it in my life. Because at the end of the day, knowing something is very different from being able to make your life better and make the world better. They're almost two separate steps. And I'm really curious about how to bridge that gap. Once you have an intellectual understanding of something, how do you put that into action? Are you deliberately working to embody what you know through your practice so it becomes habit and maybe even eventually integrates into identity? It's something that takes a lot of time and patience, a lifetime. Some would say many lifetimes. So if this is something you're working on too, I really hope that you can be patient with yourself. Patience and curiosity are qualities that I'm personally inviting into my own practice right now. I see them as an antidote to a lot of the damaging forces of modern culture. One of those patterns is the expectation of linear progress. I, I totally fall into it myself, and I'm working to reframe my relationship 
to practice where the progress and the goal is about showing up like this with patience and curiosity. I believe wholeheartedly that this is going to lead towards more growth and less suffering over the long run. And I also want to be really upfront that this is not easy for me. I am a product of my culture and fighting that feels like very much of an uphill battle. So I'm incredibly grateful for all of you doing the work by my side. It's messy. It can be very uncomfortable at times, but for me, it's the best way that I know to live a life that feels meaningful and worthwhile. So that's all I'll share for today, other than a gentle reminder to make space and time for your practice, whatever that looks like. And a thank you. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.